This morning, we're beginning a series of sermons through the book of Revelation. And the plan is, we're going to start today, and then for five more weeks, we're going to cover the first half of the book. Then we'll take a break for about seven weeks and get ready for Easter, celebrate Easter. And then right after Easter in May, toward the uh, middle of May, on through the middle of July, we'll pick back up and cover the second half of the book. That's the plan, but you know what Steinbeck said, didn't you, about mice and plans? Okay, so this morning, we have one job, and the job is to get started, and that's a big job. Now, to get started, I want to draw your attention to something that's astonishingly easily to overlook, obvious. If you brought along a Bible, just notice where Revelation comes in. So this is my Bible, all right? Here it is. So if you were looking at it, it's over here. This is a book. This is a book of books, lots of books in this book, but the key is it's a book, it's one story, and this is the last chapter. This is the end of the story. Now, here's the deal. I started reading a book by P.D. James a couple of days ago called The Lighthouse. P.D. James, a great British uh, crime novelist. What if, now this is, I've never read any of P.D. James's books. This is my first one. What if I decided the way I'm going to read this book is I'm going to start on the last chapter? Now, that wouldn't work very well. In fact, I would misunderstand what's going on. I would misinterpret it. She would want to say things that there is no way I could get because I haven't been following along up to that point. And that's what we've got to know about the Bible. The Bible tells a story. The story, the truest story that's ever been told, the true story of the world, but it's complex. And, and the Bible is filled with lots of diversity, lots of different kinds of books. But the thing that holds all the books of the Bible together is the plot line, right? You, that, that's the way it is in all of, it's the plot that organizes everything. The plot line of the Bible It's the true vision of the world, of life, of reality, of of what's good about the world and what's gone wrong with the world and how God is working to heal the world. The book of Revelation is the last book, the last chapter in that story. And so this morning, we're doing a very dangerous thing. We're starting at the end of a book. That's not a smart way to read the Bible. That's not a start way to read any books. I mean, think about it this way. A man, I've told some of you this before. A man kisses a sleeping woman in the woods, and she wakes up. Now, if we don't know that the events leading up to this foresty kiss, um, what they are, we could really misunderstand things. For example, what if the events leading up involves a whole set of things, and this is Sleeping Beauty, and Prince Philip is the one kissing her? Well, that's one set of situations. But if this is a woman hiking through the AT, and she's sleeping, and there's some creepy serial murder that kisses her, that's a whole different set of circumstances, right? What's going on? To get our bearings... We have to recognize this is not a standalone thing. It's the last part of a story. And so to get our sense of it, we, need to, we can't begin here. To enter into Revelation, you can't start there. We have to, like in my Bible, Revelation starts on page 1,235. So what we need to do to start right here is we have to read the whole thing. Mercifully, 
I'll summarize, all right? <laughs> now, and the way I want to summarize is I want to just start at the beginning and, and notice the plot. The Bible begins with the portrait of a creator. In the beginning, God created. So if you didn't know anything about this God, the first thing you know about him is that he created something. And he is an extraordinary creator. I mean, look at this world. Look at the cosmos. Look at the oceans. Um, look at the mountains and the valleys. I mean, look at my haircut. This is an astonishing. Look at Sean's beard, right? This world has such diversity. But almost immediately, now we're dealing with a book that's several, that's over a thousand pages long. And here's an interesting thing. It starts with a remarkable creator, but only two pages in, it gets very ugly. It gets dark. It gets broken. All of the sudden, this thing that's full of goodness and life and beauty, this intrusion happens. Evil. In Genesis chapter 3, we have the famous story of Adam and Eve and the snake and the forbidden fruit. And in this, we see the evil of human rebellion. Rebellion is ugly. I mean, it's ugly when it's a toddler in a grocery store. Right? And you're like, whose kid is that? Right? Um, it's uglier when it's an adolescent flying the birds to their parents. It is so much uglier when it is humanity rebelling against the king who is its, her creator. Then in Genesis chapter 6 and 7, with the story of Noah and the flood, we encounter the evil of rank wickedness. And then in Genesis chapter 11, we see the evil of human arrogance reaching an astonishing height, literally, with the Tower of Babel. So here's how the Bible begins. It begins with this beautiful creator and this beautiful creation immediately hijacked by a triple play of evil. And all three of these instances of evil, God responds in the same way. First of all, he responds with judgment. He judges the evil every time. And second of all, he responds with grace. All three situations are hijackings that God responds to by judging the hijacking and pouring out grace. As you continue to read the Bible and you begin to recognize that this is the plot this is the tension that generates the entire story the Bible tells. As you get attuned to that at the very beginning, what you begin to notice is that over and over and over, the Bible is telling the story of the strange and mysterious way that God is working for justice within a world that has been hijacked by injustice. You see, evil is the problem that the Bible is dealing with. This is the story that the Bible tells. It is the story of how God, the creator, is battling the usurper evil. Now, once you've become attuned to this and you recognize that that's the story that's being told as you're, and you're reading the Bible and it's this, this big, huge, capacious narrative, when you get to the part of the Bible, when you get to the moment in the plot where Jesus comes on the scene, you notice 
that in and around Jesus from the moment of his birth until his last breath, there is an eruption of evil. When he's born, Herod slaughters all the babies in the particular village that he was born. That's evil. And then Herod's successor brutally and unjustly cuts off the head of Jesus' first cousin. And then there are the religious leaders like the corrupt Caiaphas who gossip and lie and are constantly reaching out in manipulative and coercive ways to try and trick Jesus. And ultimately, there's the trumped-up trial before the Roman governor, Pilate. And in each of these cases, it's not just like little acts of evil, but we see political and religious systems that overreach themselves, and they end up cruelly destroying Jesus, an innocent man. And so the Bible, remember, is the story of how God is dealing with evil But we've got a problem here because we're good modern folks living in a scientifically sophisticated Western civilization. And there's something that in the story I've just told, we are very susceptible to missing. In the story the Bible tells, there's a dimension to evil that cannot be explained by Freud reducing it to sexual repression or Marx saying it's all about money, or Nietzsche saying it's all about an abuse of power. In the story the Bible tells, when it comes to evil, there is something darker than that. There is, there is this deep, dark force behind evil. In the Bible, we see that evil has this hidden dimension That there's more to evil than meets the eye. That there's a force to evil that seeps into society and companies and organizations and legislative bodies and families and churches. And sometimes it works through power structures and sometimes it works through isolated individuals. And so the deep darkness that Jesus is in conflict with, it's a larger thing than power gone mad, than sex than money. It's bigger, it's more nebulous, it's more slimy, it's harder to get your, your mind around than that. It's this nameless, scary, formless thing. And so in all these conflicts that surround Jesus, the political and the religious leaders that orchestrated and sanctioned and carried out his brutal murder, they were, these people who are Jesus's enemy are not his real enemy. There is an enemy behind the enemy. There is this real enemy that Jesus is meeting head on with the power and the love of God. And the real enemy is, is it's this anti-creation power. It's this force that is death and destruction and corruption, and decay. So once you've become attuned to the way the Bible shaped and the story that it's telling, you see that Jesus Christ, his death, his birth, his life, and ultimately his death, this is the climactic moment 
of the plot. And what's the plot? God dealing with evil. Jesus is the climactic moment of God confronting evil. The story of God dealing with all the brokenness and all the injustice and all the unfairness and all of the corruption and all of the decay. John chapter 12, the passage that I read to you just a few minutes ago. Not long before he's crucified, Jesus is talking about what's going to happen. He's talking about his crucifixion, and he's praying about it, and he has a conversation with some folks, and he makes this comment, talking about his upcoming death, his crucifixion. He says, now comes the judgment of this world. Remember? Remember the triple play of evil? How does God respond to evil? Judgment and grace. So here is Jesus looking to his cross, and he's saying to you, here it is. God's about to repeat that pattern, but in a, in a profound kind of climactic way. Now comes the judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler is going to be thrown out. You see, there he shifted. There's something behind the evil. There's this thing, this force, this quasi-personal entity that's driving all of the brokenness and decay. And he's usurped. He's hijacked the world. Now this world's ruler is going to be thrown out when I've been lifted up from the earth. And when he makes that phrase, when I've been lifted up from the earth, he's giving a literal and graphic description of the crucifixion. Because in the crucifixion, they lay a human being on the ground, they nail him to a piece of wood, and then they do what? They lift that wood up with the body on it. They lift that person up from the earth. And Jesus says, that's about to happen to me. And when that happens to me, the usurper, the enemy, will be thrown down. Now that's odd. Because in reality, what Rome and Israel thought was happening was Jesus was being thrown down. And Jesus said, no, when, I'm, when that happens to me, somehow that thing will destroy evil. Now, that's weird. I mean, is that how you think of destroying evil? Like, where's the calculus in that? Like, God getting killed kills evil. How does it exactly work? Those of you who grew up in Sunday school, you believed it so long ago, you've stopped thinking that it's strange. That, that there is a profound, that, that is an odd thing. That, that sounds like somebody talking in a language we don't know. Jesus on the cross is the climactic way God deals with evil. How can that be? I want you to think about it. Um, I want to... I want to tell you a story to try to help us wrap our minds around how the cross is dealing with evil. And it's a story that uh, Mike Trainum introduced. He told me about it. It's something that happened in Nelson County back in 1969, which Mike might, may or may not remember. I'm not sure um, how the memories are during those years. Uh, I'll go on. So here, here's the story. It's a true story. It's not a preacher story. Back in 1969, on August the 17th, there was a hurricane. I've told this story. I told this story five years ago. Some of you might remember it. There was a hurricane. Its name was Camille. It was big and it was bad. And it hit the Gulf Coast as a Category 5. And it flattened everything along the shoreline of Mississippi. And then it kept going north. And as expected, as we know, its energy dissipated as it moved up the continental United States. 
so that by the time this monster storm arrived in Virginia on the evening of August the 19th, 1969, it had weakened to a tropical depression. When it began to move across the Blue Ridge, something happened. Now, if, if you've ever seen any of the pictures from Woodstock, you, do you know that there are, if you've ever seen any of those pictures where they're totally covered in mud, it's like a just big mud fest, that's because it had been raining a lot. And it had also, that same rainstorm had been raining here. And so as Camille, now Tropical Depression, moved over the Blue Ridge Mountains, the trifecta occurred. All the moisture that had settled onto the mountains, the trees, the, the plants, the flowers, the soil, the grass, the low pressure system of the tropical storm, all of that moisture, and the geography of the Blue Ridge, it meant that the tropical depression got stuck. And because of the low pressure, it sucked up all of that moisture. It had been raining for days. It sucked it all up into the, the storm. And then you know what it did? It let it go as rain. At Davis Creek, more than 40 inches of rain fell in less than eight hours. It was so intense, reports tell of birds seeking shelter in trees that drowned from the falling water. Mike Trainum told me that for years in the hollers, um, coming down the mountain from the top, it was all washed away and the bedrock was exposed where there once were trees and dirt. And this lasted for years. The water rose so fast that people running for their lives drowned. According to the National Weather Service at the time, it was the probable maximum amount of rain theoretically possible in our atmosphere. Those who survived told stories of having to cup their hands over their mouths so that they would not drown. 1% of the population of Nelson County was killed. Okay. Now, this helps us understand what's going on on the cross. On the cross, here is Jesus Christ, God himself in the flesh. And like I said, his birth alone, he began to draw evil to himself. He began to provoke the evil of the world Onto himself. And as his life and ministry progressed, it gets more and more intense until finally at the cross, it's like Jesus is this low pressure system. He's pulling all of the evil, all the evil that over the centuries and the millennia have fallen down upon this world. He begins to draw it into himself, he begins to pull it up into himself. All the strands of evil. Throughout that whole ancient biblical story, they come rushing together from the shrieking demons in the synagogues to the sneering misunderstanding of the power brokers and the frailty and folly of his own friends and followers. And at the cross, all of these powers of evil, they gather themselves for one last battle, one last attempt. But they thought they were bringing it to Jesus. Jesus was bringing it into himself. Jesus is both the storm and the mountain. He pulls it all into him, and then he receives all of that crashing into him. And so, 
This is the climactic moment of the story that the Bible tells. We have Jesus on the cross. Here is God himself in the flesh drawing down upon himself the full weight of evil, the concentrated calamity of the cosmos. There is God himself hanging on the cross like a giant salve sucking out the poison from the wound of the world, consuming it. Down into himself. And so when we hear Jesus at the end of John's gospel, when in John chapter 19, verse 30, when we hear him say, it is finished. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. What we are seeing when we look at the story of the Bible, what we're seeing is that is not a death gurgle. That's not somebody getting to the end and say, well, I'm done. It is finished is a cry of victory. What's finished? That long story. God's battle with evil. God's trying to heal this world. It's finished. This thing that God has been up to, it is the triumphant cry that the creator of the world has dealt a death blow to death. This long story of the Bible, it's finally finished. It's reached its climax. And on the cross, he consumes evil. He consumes death and and destruction. And he consumes our sin. When Paul is reflecting on this, the Apostle Paul, he's writing a letter to some Christians who lived in an area called Colossae. And he's writing to them, it's called the Letter of Colossians. And in chapter 2, verse 15, he's, he's looking back at Jesus on the cross and he's reflecting on what Jesus was doing on the cross. And here's what he says. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them on the cross. See, Jesus looking forward to the cross says, I'm doing battle with this nebulous force, this ruler that's usurping the world. Paul looking back to the cross says, yeah, Jesus was right. And that's normally a kind of a good move to like go with Jesus, right? And so Paul says, yep, Jesus was right. That's what he was doing. He was defeating the rulers, the authorities, these powers. That's the story the Bible tells. Evil has been defeated on the cross. And at the cross, evil did its worst and its power was consumed and it was annulled. And that's where the Bible reaches its climactic moment. Now, you have to have that in mind when you start reading the book of Revelation. And that's 95% of my sermon. I've only got one page of notes left for those of you who are calculating and wondering, holy cow, we're going to be here forever. I didn't even start. No, listen, you've got to have that in mind. In fact, all through the thing that we read out of Revelation, it's referencing that. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Well, who's Jesus Christ? Well, you have to go back. What's the story that's been told about him? And then, did you notice our psalm in your worship guide? Psalm 89. Did you notice these things we read where earlier in the plot, God makes some promises Uh, page 2 in your worship God, Psalm 89, verse 2. I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens, you will establish your faithfulness. Where did God establish his greatest faithfulness? As Jesus was lifted up between the earth, in the heavens, his faithfulness was established. Look over at verse 7. I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. Revelation chapter 1 verses 1 to 8 is is John meditating on Psalm 89 and he's looking back and saying, God did it. He made Jesus the firstborn, the faithful witness, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. You've got to have this in mind. Look, 
Look at Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia. So this last chapter of the Bible is a letter. It's a letter from John to some churches. Today, what we identify as Western Turkey. Keep going. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. This is John's way of identifying the Holy Spirit by, by relating the Holy Spirit to the act of creation that occurred over seven days. There's a lot going on. We don't have time to go into all of this. What I want you to notice is how he identifies Jesus. Verse 5. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now go back for just a moment. A few minutes ago, John chapter 12, I told you about this verse. Now comes the judgment of this world. Now this world's ruler is going to be thrown out when I've been lifted up from the earth. You see, the book of Revelation begins after that has occurred. It picks up the story of Jesus after Jesus has conquered the power of evil through his death and become the Lord of the world. After he threw out the world's ruler, this evil entity, and replaced him. When revelation begins, Jesus has already won. That is the most important move. For the next 14 weeks that we go through this book, that is the key move. Jesus has already won. Just like he said he would do. Back in John chapter 12. This is what drives the book. You see, the book was written about 30 years after that happened. And so now you've got these Christians scattered around Asia. And you know what? It doesn't look like he won. Does it look to you like he's won? I mean, does your, you know... uh, Wives were still leaving husbands. Emperors were still killing innocent people. And the reason the book is written is because it's hard to believe that story I just told. See, some of us have believed it so long that we've forgotten. (laughs) It's hard to believe it. I mean, think about what I just claimed. I just claimed that Jesus Christ is the king of all the kings of the earth. He is the ruler of all the rulers of the earth. He's the one that's really in control. Look at the last verse, verse 8 that we read. I'm the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord. All right, okay, so God is the beginning. He, he started this whole thing. He got it going. In the beginning, God created. And he's Omega. He's the, he's the one where it's headed. The problem is living in the middle, right? Right now, where he's supposed to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Look what it says. The Lord God who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That word Almighty, it does not mean um, like some abstract omnipotence. It means he's really in control. And the reason the book of Revelation is written is to show us how that's true. How can it be that God really is in control, that something really did happen at the cross, that the victory really was won, that death really was defeated. How is that true when death is still clobbering us? And disease is still clobbering us, and injustice is still ripping this world apart. And the whole book of Revelation is written to a group of people who are a minority group, and they are getting slammed, and they are getting just annihilated by the powers that be. 
And so in the weeks ahead, this is our job. Our job is to see how that little group was coming to recognize that, yes, Jesus really is the king. And that is not just a motto. That is not just some uh, pie-in-the-sky kind of wishful thinking. It, how is it really true? And get this. How do we live like that? And how do we bear witness to kings and rulers and governors and mayors and city councils and husbands and wives and friends and bosses and children who don't believe it and who don't act like it? How do we bear witness to that? And this is a really complex thing. And this is our journey ahead.